Good morning and welcome to our worship service this morning. We want to welcome all of our guests, visitors, and those listening on radio. Thank you for joining us for worship at First Church. Several announcements before we start this morning. We have several guest musicians today, one of them you just heard. Playing our prelude this morning, we want to welcome Miss Olivia Lammers, who is the son of Joe and Sarah Lammers. And also providing us with music during our offering this morning, we want to welcome Mitchell and Brittany Hirschfeld of Bellbrook. Also this morning, congratulations to Tiana and Tiana Height and Robert Fisher. They were united in Christian marriage yesterday, July 20th, here at First Church. Tonight, I want to welcome all junior and senior high students to the Backyard Bible Study from 6.30 to 8 at Dave and Judy Bumbar's house. All you have to do is bring a lawn chair and your Bible, and we'll see you there. Also on that line, the Backyard Bible Study, there is no Backyard Bible Study next Sunday. Also, today we're in the middle of two milestones for our church. This past Thursday, July 18th, marks three years that Pastor Joel has been with us. And on Monday, July 22nd, marks four years that Tori has been our youth pastor. Thank you, to you, thank you to both of you and your families for your dedication and leadership. We pray that we have many more years together. That takes care of my announcements. There are numerous other announcements in your bulletin. I pray that you take time to look them over. And now, those who are able, will you please rise and join me for my call to worship this morning. This morning it is taken from Revelation, chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the hot throne, to the Lamb, praise, honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Please remain standing for our opening praise song this morning, Cornerstone.
children come forward for the children's chat, just take a moment and greet one another. Good morning. I got to talk this way. How are you guys? Warm. <laughs> well, good. Um, can anybody tell me what a promise is? What's a promise, Reagan? Something you... It's all right. What's a promise? Something that you never break. So something that you tell someone and that you think that you're going to do, that you say that you're going to do. Okay, so there's a promise. Um, What promises have you guys made? Have you guys ever said, Mom and Dad, I promise I'm going to clean up my room. I promise, I promise, I promise. Yeah. Mom, I promise I'm going to eat all the vegetables on my plate. I promise, I promise, I promise. No, for me it was a fish. I didn't like fish. So I promise I'm going to eat all the fish on my plate. I promise, I promise, I promise. Maybe we promise a friend that we're going to play with them. Or we promise to be kind to our siblings and share. I promise I'm going to share the toy, Mom. I promise. Um, Maybe we promise to be good in a store, and maybe if we promise to be good in a store, maybe we think that we're going to get like a candy bar or a pack of Starburst or a toy in the store. You guys ever say, I promise, I promise I'll be good. Have you guys ever broken a promise? Have you guys ever said, Mom and Dad, I promise I'm going to clean up my room, and then you never do? Yeah? I know I have. I used to do that. It's like, I promise I'll get it done. Have you guys ever promised, hmm, I, I promise I'll get my homework done. I'll get, I'll get it done tonight. And it's maybe on a Friday night, and then you're doing it Sunday night. That was me. I did that because I was like, I wanted to play on the weekends. Well, well I, I didn't do that because I don't have homework. Oh, well, you don't have, well, you'll have homework one day. Um, who is one person that always keeps their promises? God. God. Why does God always keep his promises? Because he's perfect? I think that's a pretty good one. He's perfect. And you know what? He promises things because he cares for us. Right? So there's different scripture here. In Matthew chapter 11, he promises to free us from our worry. In John 14, he promises peace in our heart. In Jeremiah 29, he promises to guide us. And to give us life and hope and a beautiful future. And in Isaiah 49, he promises to keep us safe. So with all of these promises, God has never broken any single one of them. He might get hurt, but he always promises he's going to make it better. And what's one of the promises that you guys can actually see if what happens after it rains? 
what's one promise that God made to us after it rains? And if you look up in the sky, you'll see this. A rainbow. That's a visual that you guys can see of God's promises. But what does the rainbow mean? Do you guys know? What's the rainbow mean? The rainbow means that he's never going to flood the earth again. So when you see that rainbow, you know God kept his promise, right? Well, Pastor Joel's going to talk to your mom and dad, the grandmas and grandpas and other people that God is going to promise one day to come back to us and he's going to take us up into his eternal home, heaven. And when we believe in Jesus and we have Jesus in our heart and we know the promises that he keeps are true, we will get to live in heaven one day with him when he comes back for us. Okay? All right, let's go ahead and pray, okay? Thank you, Lord, for the promises that you give us. We look forward to your greatest promise of all. And when you come back and take us to your eternal home, heaven, where we will one day be with you forever. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Killed in Faria province in Afghanistan, Sergeant Major James G. Sartor, 40, from Teague, Texas. Lost in our service in Tennessee, Private First Class Brandon Casey Nicole, 24, from White Oak, Texas. In Virginia, Aviation Electronics Technician Third Class Peter A. Sinise, 35, from Loxahatchee, Florida. In California, Culinary Specialist, Third Class, Emmett Antone Brown II, 30, from Atlanta, Georgia. In Kuwait, Sergeant William Fries, 30, from Rockport, West Virginia. Thank you, Jay. Let's take a moment and go to the Lord together in prayer. Father God, we trust you this morning with all of the burdens, the concerns that are on our hearts. Lord, we are, we are people who need you. We recognize that, that apart from you, we uh, are unable to, um, unable to save ourselves and unable to uh, go through this life on our own, Lord. We have heard the testimony of people over and over again as they faced challenges, as they faced the most difficult moments of their life. They say, we don't know how we could do this without the strength that the Lord provides. Lord, what a testimony to your goodness and your provision and your presence during times of trouble. Lord, it's that promise, it's that hope that we hold on to. As we face, Lord, whatever challenges life may bring, we hold on to the hope, we hold on to the the joy and the peace knowing, Lord, that your presence is what makes it all possible. And so, Lord, whatever we face this day, we come in the confidence knowing that you are with us, uh, that your power is made perfect in our weakness, and that we can even rejoice in our struggles and in our hardships, Lord, as, as, as your word says, because we know what you are going to do and accomplish through us. 
Lord, we understand that sometimes the answer that you provide is not the one that we were looking for. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us to have a peace that passes all understanding. That as we come to you and and lift up our loved ones who are in need of healing, as we lift up our situations, Lord, whether they be material or spiritual, Lord, we know that, that sometimes the answer that you provide is not the one we expect or want. And so, Lord, bring us peace and help us to truly believe and understand that your will is what's best for us. Lord, that's why you teach us to pray in that way, that, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I thank you. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you gave us the example of, of what that looks like lived out. That in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that you were betrayed, you, you knelt before your Father and prayed, Lord, if it's at all, at all possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Lord Jesus, you know what it is to submit to the will of your Father. And, and Lord, that is what you lead us to do as well. So help us alongside uh, in following your example to pray that prayer, not my will, but yours be done. Lord, we acknowledge that uh, we are all uh, sinners in need of a Savior, that you are our hope, that you have loved us and redeemed us and bought us as, as your own and have adopted us into your family as sons and daughters of the King. And so we do look forward to the day when you will return and, and establish your kingdom on this earth, when all the wrongs will be made right, when all the injustices will be made just, and you will um, be king, king of kings and lord of lords uh, forever and ever. We thank you for that, and thank you for the promises that you make us in your word. We pray all these things according to your will, as Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. When Christ returns, it will be a time of joy for his people. Let's stand and in your blue hymnals, let's sing number 125, Joy to the World, the marked verses only. This time we will prepare to collect the offering for this morning. The offering does go to support the heating system project that we are currently working on here at the church. I do think 
God has a little bit of a sense of humor uh, as we as we collect an offering on the hottest day of the year, probably, uh, that is going to be going to help support the heating system project. But as you have heard a few weeks ago, as you can see around the church, progress is being made. We are so excited to, to see things happening and look forward to uh, the completion of that project later this fall. So any any money that is giving today, given today in the plate uh, will go towards uh, helping cover the cost of that project we have before us. I invite those who are helping with the offering to come forward, please. Thank you. So we'll be 
It's from Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You may be seated. Father God, as we come to you this morning and open your word together, uh, we pray for your continued blessing on our service. We thank you for uh, the, the music, the prayers, the scripture reading, the children's chat, all, the, the offering, Lord, all the, all the components, Lord, that are all part of our worship of you. Uh, we thank you, and, and through them all, we praise your name. And Lord, our worship continues now as we open your word. Uh, help us to hear what you have to say to us. Help us to uh, know and, and um, believe what your word says to us, Lord. And not only um, know it in an intellectual sense, but Lord, help us to believe it in such a way that we see a real and um, transformational change in our own hearts and minds as it pertains to your second coming. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I was thinking this morning about uh, more about this sermon and, and thinking through how I was going to be delivering today. Something kind of clicked for me and, uh, and made this passage help me understand this in maybe a, a new and profound way. You see, this afternoon I am expecting a, a, a coming myself. I'm expecting an arrival of my wife and kids back from uh, Allie's parents' house. They've been spending the last 
week and a half or so at Allie's parents in Canton. And so I've been here in New Knoxville and, and kind of living the single life again. Uh, and, and I am very much looking forward to, very much anticipating their arrival this afternoon as they travel back home uh, to join, to be home again. Um, it's been, like I said, a week and a half is probably the longest uh, in one time span that I've been away from Allie and the kids and maybe ever. Um, and, and so uh, as I woke up this morning and was thinking about the sermon and thinking about our anticipation of, of the arrival of Christ and his second coming, I was reminded uh, of that joy and that, that longing that I know and experience for my family to be back home again. You see, it's that kind of joy, that kind of uh, hope, that kind of anticipation that we as Christians should have looking forward to the return of Christ, to be reunited with him in a real and practical way. That's, that's how the New Testament describes this return of Christ, this with joyful anticipation of being reunited uh, with Christ once again. In the book of Acts, when Jesus, in chapter 1, when Jesus uh, goes to be with the Father and ascends after the resurrection to be uh, in heaven at the right hand of the Father, uh, two angels appear and the disciples are caught staring up at the clouds, staring up at the sky, wondering, almost, almost in this expectation that Christ will return again immediately. And, and the angels say, be ready. He will come again. Just as he left you, he will return once again. And from that moment, from that day, God's people have been anticipating his arrival, his return to this world. And that's what we're going to be discussing and and talking about today. The second coming of Christ. You just heard Connie read from this passage from the book of Revelation. But this is not just a, an issue with the book of Revelation, as we've been talking about the last couple of weeks and we'll continue to talk about uh, for a few more weeks as well. This is a, the, the idea of the second coming of Christ uh, is, a, is a topic that is discussed throughout Scripture. And, and we see that especially grounded in Jesus' own teaching. In Mark chapter 8, verse 38, he talks about uh, not being ashamed of, about us as followers, not being ashamed of him in this world so that when Christ returns, when he comes in his Father's glory with us, all his angels, we, he would not be ashamed of us as well. In Mark chapter 13, verse 26, he says that at that time people will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. Jesus himself was well aware of his, of his second coming, of what that would entail. As I mentioned already, the book of Acts is, is grounded in that framework, that foundation, that just as Jesus left this world, just as he ascended to be with the, heaven, be with the Father in heaven, he will come again to be in this world. And that idea, that idea of the, the second coming of Christ is found throughout the New Testament and Paul's teaching and Peter's teaching um, and obviously here in the book of Revelation. And we'll look at some of those passages together today. I share that with you because the, the importance of Christ's coming is not a secondary issue. This isn't just something that was uh, created or made up uh, in recent uh, recent times. This is something that is grounded in the very core of the gospel from the days of Jesus's earthly ministry in the early church, that Christ will come again as, as judge, as conquering king, and establish his kingdom here in this place. It even echoes 
uh, the, the theme in the Old Testament of the day of the Lord, the day when God would right all of the wrongs in this world, when God would bring and establish justice and righteousness. That is what Christ will do when he returns. In a sense, Christ's second coming is, is his way of, of completing or consummating the saving work that began with the cross and the resurrection. See, in Scripture, there's, in generally speaking, kind of four major movements in Scripture. There's creation, there's the fall, there's redemption, and consummation. Four major themes. God created this world good and perfect. When he looked at it, and even after creating Adam and Eve, he said, it is all very good. And then there was the fall, right? The sin entering in the world and corrupting this good creation. Then we have redemption, Christ coming dying on the cross, being raised again in order to redeem a people for himself, redeem creation itself. But yet we know from our own experience that that is not fully here yet, is it? We experience Christ's saving work on the cross, yet we still live in a world that is tainted by sin. And we experience the realities of sin each and every day. And so there is a a step yet to come, a movement yet to come, and that is consummation, the completion of God's saving work when sin and death and all of the effects of sin will be, will be removed once and for all and God will establish his kingdom forever. And so as I've, I know I've mentioned before, we're, we're kind of in a sense living in between the times, living in between the redemption and the consummation of Christ's kingdom. Think about it from a maybe earthly perspective. It's like the time between an election and inauguration day, right? We hold the presidential elections or, you know, in, in November of a given year. And from that day forward, we know that whoever our country chooses to be its leader is going to be president, but they're not president quite yet, right? They have to wait till inauguration day in January when, when the results of the election are officially put into practice and made real. And so we live in a time, in a sense, uh, in between the, the, the redemption and the consummation is like in a time between president, the, the, the election and the inauguration. We know it's happening. God has won the victory through Christ. We're just waiting for it to be fully realized when Christ returns again. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews chapter 9 verses 27 and 28. He says, Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. See, we often think of salvation in a past tense, but Scripture actually talks about salvation as a past, present, and future reality. At different points in, in the New Testament, we talk about being saved in the past tense, or it's about having been saved in Christ. When Christ died on the cross, he saved us from our sins. That, that one act was a, a redeeming and atoning sacrifice for all people for all time, right? That grace is found in Christ in that act that happened at a point of history in the past. But the scriptures also talk about being saved in the present tense. We are currently being saved as we trust in Christ, as the Holy Spirit works in our lives and the the presence of the Holy Spirit transforms our hearts from the inside out as we become more and more like Christ. Scripture talks about that as salvation as well, being saved, being made more and more like Christ. 
And then with the second coming of Christ, we also think of salvation in the future tense. When Christ returns, we will be saved. We will be rescued. We will be redeemed in a full and complete sense. And so as Christians, we know that objectively in the past that Christ died for us and we have been saved. Full stop, right? We know that to be true from the promises of his word. We also know from our present experience that he continues to work in us to make us more and more like him. So we can experience that, continue to experience that salvation each and every day. We also know, and we're talking about today, the future sense, when Christ will return and establish his kingdom forever. We long for that day. We look forward to it with joy and anticipation because that means that we will fully experience that salvation for ourselves. There's several themes that are associated in Scripture with, or events that are associated in Scripture with the second coming of Christ. One I've already mentioned is the idea of of the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. If you turn to just about any of the prophetic books in the Old Testament, whether it's Isaiah uh, or Jeremiah or Daniel, we see this conversation of the day of the Lord. That one day God will establish his kingdom. God will make all of the wrongs right. He will, he will answer all of the injustices in this world. And God will, uh, God will judge the nations and redeem his people. And so, and what we see in the Old Testament is made more clear and, and fulfilled in the New Testament. In Christ's return, we will see that take place. At Christ's return, we also have the promise and the hope of resurrection. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, so too will we be raised from the dead. This isn't a a spiritual resurrection. This isn't just, you know, disembodied souls floating around in heaven. This is a real physical resurrection that Scripture talks about. Our bodies will be made new and made like His own body. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, Paul writes, Our citizenship is in heaven, And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul spends a whole chapter talking about that reality, that when Christ comes, we will be raised from the dead, whether whether we are still alive at that moment or whether we have been dead for a thousand years. Christ will, will transform us. He will make us new. Our, we will set aside our earthly bodies that have been tainted by sin and sickness and disease, and we will be able to uh, experience and know creation as it was meant to be without the effects of sin. And so there is a, a real physical resurrection that we have to look forward to. And that is, again, not a, a side point, but is it important for us to to emphasize and to remember. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that if there is no resurrection, then we are without hope. That we, our faith is useless and we are still left in our sins. But there is a resurrection. Christ rose from the dead and we too will be with him and be like him in his kingdom. And so there is resurrection and there is judgment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1-5, through 5, Paul writes... This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries that God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I carry very little, excuse me, I care very little 
If I am judged by you or by any human court, indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness, and he will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. See, when Christ comes, he will come as the conquering king, as the judge of the heavens and the earth, the judge of the living and the dead, as we say in the Apostles' Creed. He is a righteous and good judge. And so as, as he, when he returns, he will judge this world. And thankfully, those of us in Christ, we have been found in a, with a righteousness that is not our own. Our righteousness is nothing compared to the glory and the righteousness of Christ. We cannot earn our place in Christ's kingdom. We cannot hope to stand on the day of judgment in our own power, in our own strength. But because of Christ and what he's done for us, we have hope because he has redeemed us for himself. And we receive his righteousness and his redemption. But we'll talk... We're going to talk a little bit more on on judgment next week, and so we will save more of that for later. This passage from Revelation 19 gives us a description of what that coming king will look like. And I would like to take some time today to to talk about those details and what we can learn about Christ's second coming from it. I said last week as we looked about at the overview of the book of Revelation that it's full of symbols and, and metaphors and and sometimes and, and they are very good for helping us to uh, get a, a picture of something that is hard for us to understand. Right? They can help us to get glimpses of God's glory and His majesty and His beauty. Um, and so we we're going to take a few minutes today and look at some of those. And, and in doing so, we'll get a picture of this coming King in His glory. But I want to encourage you as well to that we don't lose the, as I mentioned last week, not lose the forest for the trees, not get so wrapped up and lost in the details that we've missed the big picture of what God is doing here. And so in Revelation 19, we get this picture of the coming king. And, and this, this conquering king is coming on a white horse. White horses were often symbols of victory. They were reserved for emperors and conquering generals as they rode into a new territory or a new city that they had conquered. They would do so on a white horse. And so when Christ comes again, he comes as a conquering king, as a victorious warrior. You see, when Christ came the first time, he came as the suffering servant. Isaiah 53 talks about this one who is to come, who will, who will lay down his life. It is his wounds, his, uh, his suffering that will bring about our salvation. That is what Christ accomplished in his first coming on the cross. But in a second coming, he will come as the conquering king. There's a great scene in the, in the second Lord of the Rings movie called The Two Towers. And the, the whole trilogy, whether you're reading the books or watching the movies, is full of, of Christian imagery and, and symbolism. And at the, near the end of this movie, the, the people are caught in this, entrenched in this, in this battle. It's called Helm's Deep. And they are surrounded on all sides by an enemy army. And it seems like there is no hope for victory. And so at dawn of the last day, they decide to ride out and kind of make their last stand and, in a sense, go down in a, in a blaze of glory. And at that moment, as they charge out into the battle in a, what seemed like a hopeless attempt to win the war, 
uh, over the, the ridge oh, in the background, as the sun is rising, comes Gandalf, the, herier, the warrior, uh, the um, Christ figure, in a sense, comes dressed in white, riding on a white horse with an army behind him. And as he rides into battle, the tides turn and they achieve victory in a moment as, as he comes in and rides into the rescue. In a sense, that's what Christ is doing. When he comes in his second coming, he will come victorious. He will come riding on a white horse and he will conquer his enemies. This rider is called faithful and true. This is in contrast to many kings of Israel who failed morally, spiritually, and politically. Israel's history is a history of some good kings, but many, many failures. People that did not live up to the expectations of, of it, what a good and perfect king would be. But that is not the case with Christ. He will be the good and perfect leader. He will be faithful and true. The kind of leader that we all long for. He will come in righteousness. There's no doubt about his judgment. It is right and good. Right? We may question other people's motivations and often do in the, with the leaders, whether it's in churches or in politics or in business. We often question, what is their motivation? Is it selfish? Is it, are they motivated by greed? But that's not the case with Jesus. We know that when he judges, he will judge right and true. He, is, he will judge with righteousness. It says that his eyes are like flames of fire. This is a reminder that Christ sees all things. He knows all things and nothing can be hidden from his sight. When Christ comes, he will see us just as we are. We can't hide ourselves. We can't pretend to be different. Jesus knows us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And that's why we must throw ourselves at his mercy and his grace. It says that this Rider will come with many crowns on his head as a reminder of Christ's absolute authority and dominion. In Revelation 11, it talks about how the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God. When Christ comes, all authority, all rule will be given to him. And it's all crowns because it represents that every tribe, every nation, every tongue will be part of God's kingdom. In Revelation chapter 7, Verses 9 and 10, we're reminded of this. That is not the right scripture reference. Somewhere in the book of Revelation, and I did not have the right passage written down for me today. It reminds us, it says he sees a great multitude of all, representing all peoples, every nations, every tribe, every tongue, are all part of God's kingdom when he comes. It's reminded that, that our faith is bigger than just us here in New Knoxville, that there are people all over this world, all over this country that are part of God's kingdom, that God has created us all to know him, to love him, to be part of his, be in a relationship with him. And when we get to heaven, it's going to be a multi-ethnic, multinational place. And what a joy that is to hear God's praises sung in different languages. I've been a part of worship services at, at conferences where they've invited speakers to, to come forward and, and, and lead us in a worship song in a, in a language that, that I had no idea. Some were from African churches. One was uh, an Asian church. And hearing God's praises sung in those languages was a beautiful thing. Now, I had no idea necessarily the words that they were saying, but I could tell that they were praising and worshiping the Lord. And what a, what a joy that was. 
And just what a glimpse of what heaven will be like. When God establishes his kingdom, it will be a kingdom of all nations, tribes, and tongues. It says here that this rider will have a name that no one knows but himself. It's a reminder that God is bigger, more glorious than we could possibly know. Names in scripture especially were meant to represent a person's character and and the essence of who they were. And so we see here that that this writer is faithful and true. He is the word of God. He is the king of kings and Lord of lords. Those are all descriptions of who this person is, who Jesus is for us. But yet there's also an aspect of God's nature, of Jesus' nature as the son of God that is still unknown to us, that is still a mystery because God is bigger than we could possibly know or imagine for ourselves. Right, if, God, if we could possibly know every aspect of God, if we could somehow fit him into a box, then he wouldn't really be God, would he? He'd lose majesty and glory if we could perfectly explain everything about him. But there are parts of God that we can't understand, that we can't know, we can't explain. And that's a good thing. It means that God is, is great and bigger than we can wrap our minds around. It says here that his robe will be dipped in blood. Maybe kind of frightening or scary imagery. What, whose blood is it, right? That might be your first question that comes to mind. And while there is no clear indication here what, whose blood this represents, I tend to believe that this is his own blood. See, Christ accomplished this victory. He is the conquering king, not because he shed the blood of his enemies, but because he laid down his own life and shed his own blood for us. The, the robe dipped in blood is a reference to the cross that God's ultimate victory is achieved not through warfare, not through political means, but through Christ and him crucified. That his blood was shed for the redemption of our sins. That, that Christ won the ultimate victory through that event. Notice here that this army that's assembled behind him, they're not dressed for war, are they? They're dressed in white linens. There's no weapons mentioned besides the sword that comes from Christ's mouth. Because his victory has already been won by the shedding of his own blood. And Romans chapter 3 reminds us that Christ's blood was shed for our forgiveness. Verses, beginning of verse 22, it says, This righteousness is given through faith, In Jesus Christ, to all who believe, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have fallen short, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And we are all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand, unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. We are justified not by our own works, but by the blood of Christ shed for us. And his name is the word of God. He is the living and full revelation of God and his glory. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word was with God in the beginning. Jesus is the perfect representation of God's character and his will for this world. And we saw that in, in his servanthood and in his, in his self-giving sacrifice in his first coming. And we'll see that in his glory and his majesty and his power in his second coming. Because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's a direct refutation of, uh, of finding our hope in anything besides Christ. 
See, Caesar at the time uh, would, would take on the title, uh, Caesar is Lord, right? And so to name Jesus as Lord was to say Caesar was not. It's a direct refutation that our hope is found in anything short of the living God in Christ Jesus. What a, what a glorious picture. What a beautiful image of what it will be like when Christ comes. Scripture teaches us that the timing, the day of this is all unknown. I pointed to Matthew 24 last week that it says even the Son of Man doesn't know the day and the time that this will all take place. Only the Father in heaven knows. And so as we reflect on the coming of Christ, it's important for us to not get so caught up in, in when exactly it will happen because in doing so, we miss the bigger picture of why it's happening, that he will come and establish his kingdom in this place. Several times in Scripture, including 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, Matthew 24, uh, 2 Peter 3, even in Revelation, it describes the coming of Christ as a thief coming in the night. And it's not a thief as in the sense of, of someone who comes uh, sudden or, or, excuse me, comes in a, in a way that we're going to miss it. The thing about a thief is, is you don't know when they're going to come. You don't know when they're going to strike. It's unpredictable. It's unexpected. And so, therefore, you need to be prepared for that possibility. That's why we lock our doors at night. That's why we have security systems on our homes and our cars. So that, because we know the possibility that a thief may strike at any time. And so we prepare ourselves for that eventuality, for that possibility. And that's what Scripture is saying. Christ's return is like a thief in the night. We don't know when it's going to happen. It's unpredictable. It's, it's sudden. But we do know it will happen. And so we need to be prepared and, and be ready for it when it comes. Scripture talks about the signs of the times. talks about things like wars and rumors of war, about tribulation, about persecution, even about this sense of false peace that often comes in our world. These are all used uh, as symbols to describe what the end times will be like. But if we think about it, those have all been realities in our world from the day Christ came the first time until now. Think of a time of human history. Has there ever been a time that was absent of war or rumors of war? Have there ever, has there ever been a time where God's people have not had, a, had lived in fear of, of tribulation or hardship or even persecution? Even in our world today, the church is persecuted. Maybe not here, but in other parts of our world. Persecution is real and dangerous. And so, as I mentioned last week, we are, in a sense, living in the end times because ever since Christ's first coming, we've been waiting for and anticipating His second coming. We don't need to worry about specific signs and dates. We don't need to try to map it all out ourselves. People have been trying to do that for millennia. And have failed to do so. Instead, we need to worry about being ready ourselves. Being ready so that when the time does come, whenever that may be, we won't be found or caught off guard. See, Scripture describes Christ's coming happening in a moment. While there may be signs of the times, Christ's coming will be sudden. It will be immediate. In popular culture, we've, we've referred to this time as, as the rapture, right? A lot of the questions that I'm tackling today have, have had to deal with the rapture, with what Christ's coming will be like. And, and in, our, in our popular culture, we view this, this time as a time well, almost like an escape plan, right? God will come and take us all away. 
But in Scripture, we get a different picture. The, the, to that time, call it the rapture, call it something else, it's not an evacuation plan, it's a welcome party. Because when Christ does come, it's not to take us away, but it's to establish His kingdom here and now, to recreate this heaven and earth and establish His kingdom. The word that's used in Scripture is often used to describe what would happen when visiting dignitaries would, would uh, when, when important dignitaries would visit a city. The people would go outside of the city walls. They'd go out into the roads and line the streets in order to welcome that figure to the town. And so that's, in a sense, what will happen when Christ returns. He's not coming, us to, coming to take us out of this world, but to establish his kingdom here. And we will be prepared to welcome him to this place. In fact, that's what we pray when we pray the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Not, uh, not take us away, not, not, uh, not bring us to heaven, but it's allow your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, to establish heaven here in this place. He is taking us to be with him. He is taking us to heaven, but he's bringing heaven to earth and establishing his kingdom here. And so what does this all mean for us? I want three things briefly takeaways from from all that we've talked about in this big subject we've been tackling today one is of course to be ready after talking about the signs of the times and and the son of man coming like a thief in the night jesus tells the parable of the ten virgins five of them were prepared and ready five of them were not and the point of the parable was that we don't want to be found unprepared when the lord turns we want to be found ready and waiting and anticipating his arrival And we do that by repenting, by turning to him. We don't want to show contempt for the Lord's patience. God is patient with us, not so that we can ignore this reality, but so that we can repent and be ready for him when he returns. He's patient with us because he desires for us to know him and repent and be found ready and waiting. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4 Paul says, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? So we must be ready. We must be repentful and we must be good citizens of the kingdom. Christ will come to establish his kingdom when he returns, but that doesn't mean we can't live as good citizens now. We should live good and holy lives so that whenever Christ comes, we will be ready and waiting. Whenever scripture talks about the second coming of Christ, it's always meant, always meant to encourage us to live good and holy lives now so that, so that we can encourage one another, so that we can be more Christ-like, so that we can be a light in a dark world, so that others may see our good works and glorify God who is in heaven. Right? We're called to share that good news, share that hope with others, and it begins by living as citizens of the kingdom in this world. Our ultimate allegiance is not to a political party or an economic system or, or to anything that this world has to offer. It's to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who will come one day and establish his kingdom in this world. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are our King. We look forward and long for the day when you will come and establish your kingdom here in this world. Lord, we acknowledge that we may not know all the details. We may not know exactly what will surround that event, but we do know it will happen. And we do know when it does, uh, you will be 
Uh, We want to be found ready and waiting in your righteousness and not our own. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In closing, let's stand and let's sing uh, the first and the last verses of number four, How Great Thou Art, numbers one and four. or imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You may go in peace.